Reporting live on a horror situation as it unfolds carries a weight of responsibility I wouldn't want, especially when the information that's coming out at a frantic and panicked pace might be sketchy, yet it's exactly what a journalist has to do. Journalists and editors are making decisions all the time. Sometimes they get it wrong, but most often they do a solid job. In a situation like the terror attack of March 15, 2019 in Christchurch, they're sifting information at a rapid rate. Not only that, the very nature of the story gives it the hefty gravity of needing to truly get it right so as not to feed panic or misrepresent people in a way that re-victimises those who are already suffering. When I spent time with journalists the hours after the attack, it was clear that I was dealing with people who took that responsibility very seriously. They wanted to get it right because they knew that the ramifications of getting it wrong, particularly for the Muslim community of Christchurch, were, and still are, significant. So how did they deal with that weight of responsibility? I'm Frank Ritchie, media chaplain, minister, broadcaster. In this series, I'm sitting down with Christchurch journalists who were right there, informing the nation as the reality of the carnage of that day was revealed. Their experiences as information gatherers and sharers often goes unnoticed. I wanted them to be seen and heard. Welcome to episode 6 of Friday Prayers. In this, the final episode of the series, I chat with Logan Church, a Christchurch-based RNZ national reporter at the time of the attack. He's now based in Wellington. I sat down with Logan in a short window he had the day following the attack. He hadn't slept. He was shell-shocked and trying to process what had happened and what was still to come. He understood the seriousness of what he was doing. Logan, thanks for taking some time with me. I really appreciate it. No worries. Now, how did you get into radio? Let's start there. So I started studying at broadcasting school. It would have been, I guess, five years ago now, maybe six, five years ago, I think. Um, and to be honest, I woke up one day in high school and thought being a journalist might be interesting. And then I went and applied and I got in. So there was no lifelong childhood dream No, to I wanted to be journalist. an architect. Oh, really? And then I realised I was terrible at it. So, um, no, I did not end up being an architect, um, but ended up at broadcasting school. Um, so I studied there. And then at the end of broadcasting school, I was offered an internship at Radio New Zealand down in Christchurch, where I have been working up until the end of last year, now based in Wellington. Okay, so you're not born, bred Christchurch? No, born in Wellington. Okay, so this is the, where we're recording this interview is your hometown. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird homecoming for me this year. <laughs> Man, so architects, um, well, I'm, I'm personally glad you didn't go with architects. So then. As, a, as a fan of your work, I'm extremely glad that you landed in radio. So five years isn't that long in the big scheme of things. No. It's something like March 15, only five years in. That's, that's, pr- that's pretty massive. Well, I remember in my first couple of weeks as an intern at Radio New Zealand, we had the Port Hills fires. True. Um, And I was out with a senior colleague. We were out driving around the cordon, which was huge. It covers the entirety almost of the Port Hills. Mm -hmm. And I remember they said to me, this will be one of the biggest stories of your career. And that was the Port Hills fire. Now, that was a big story, and it was terrible what happened. But by gosh... Have we gone through a lot since, um, especially in the South Island? Oh, yeah. Well, hopefully then, touch uh, wood if I can find some, touch wood that you have had the biggest story of your life because the idea that anything could top March 15, that that thought is just horrid. Mm. Let's jump into that. What, what did the day look like for you? How did it start? So that was the day of the first climate 
protests, the student climate change protests. Oh, really? Yeah, so I remember in the morning there was a lot of effort in the news meetings to figure out you know, how we'd cover this great big event and I guess not to take away the seriousness of the climate change issue but the amount of effort we put into organising coverage of the, of the national strikes across the country is quite um, I suppose morbidly entertaining in hindsight um, especially considering how the day um, ended but we were out um, at midday crossing into the, into the bulletin in Cathedral Square talking to students um, who were out, you know, protesting against climate change. Um, there were um, uh, thousands of people out on the street. It was quite incredible. And then we went back to the office and we were sort of thinking about how we would wrap up the day. It was a Friday and we had a long week and we were, you know, ready to dial things back down. And then a colleague of mine who was on the, the way home texted the uh, bureau chief of Christchurch's um, newsroom and said there seemed to be a lot of running around, I think it was, around the Elnor Mosque, which is actually a mosque that we visited at broadcasting school as mm. part of a unit at broadcasting school. So I called up my boss at the time and said, hey, there's lots of movement apparently around the mosque, and I think we should go and have a look. Um, so I jumped in the car with... Um, were you, were you sceptical at this point? Because a couple of the others that I've spoken to have talked about the number of reports they get for things and they'll go and turn up or whatever and it turns out not to be not to be real. In your mind, what was going on at this point? Yeah, I, I, I guess I was sceptical something was happening, but I don't know. You have to... We sort of have a phrase where you have to be in it to, to win it as, as a journalist. If you don't go and see if something's happening, then you're never going to find out. Mm. So, And it's not that far away from our newsroom, a five-minute drive. So it doesn't hurt at least driving by, and I am glad that we did. Um, so Simon Rogers, who was our fantastic um, cameraman in Christchurch, um, he's now working in Auckland, but he and I jumped in the car, and just by chance I thought of grabbing our live view kit. Um, so thank goodness I chucked that in the car. And we were driving um, through town trying to figure out what was going on, and I think at that point the police had sent through just an update saying they were responding to a critical incident in Christchurch, and that was all, actually, that they said, I understand, for hours, as far mm -hmm. as I'm aware, which um, proved challenging later on in the day. Um, but nothing really seemed out of place until we drove around the hospital, because the way we're our offices, you have to drive through the CBD down St. Asif Street, and at the end of St. Asif Street, you then make a sort of turn to go through Hagley Park, around the, um, the main hospital there, and we saw people outside sort of people flooding outside the hospital into that raised car parking area and there was there were armed police sort of dotted as far as we could see around us and it sort of almost looked like a, a um, almost like a fortress because it's mm. sort of a raised um, sort of a raised sort of um, wall around it with armed police on top and we thought that was a bit odd and then we kept going around and ended up at the intersection of Rickerton and Dean's Ave and jumped out of the car um, and uh, saw a whole lot of police officers running around. I remember quite distinctly looking through the trees and seeing this, uh, I think, four-person um, um, armed defender squad unit running underneath the sort of darkened trees. I was like, this, this is you know, obviously something. So you're the, you were there yeah. then as the armed defender squad were making their way into the situation? Yeah, they were running in and out. Okay. Um, so as far as I can sort of tell, we probably arrived a, a, probably a minute or two, maybe a bit more after the alleged terrorist 
left. Okay. So we jumped out of the car and we were sort of milling around and figuring out what was going on. Um, we parked up on the grass there. And then uh, walking up the path uh, down from the mosque, which sort of runs along Hackley Park, I saw a man who um, was in a suit, but he was and he had socks on, but no shoes. Mm. And I thought that was odd. So I jumped over the little fence that surrounds the park and went and spoke to him. And he said, like, 40 or 50 people are dead. Mm. And, and of course, he would have had no shoes for those who are unfamiliar with how this works because you take off your shoes when you go into yeah. the mosque to do your prayers. Yeah, so he, he was in, said 40, 50 people are dead. And I, I just thought, no, that can't be true. That can't be true. But Simon came over and the other reporters came over. And as far as I can tell, he was one of the first people that we interviewed mm. after the incident. Um, and then, yeah, the rest of the afternoon happened, I guess. You mentioned before the challenge, because the police weren't putting out a lot of information. So you've got someone standing there telling you that 40 to 50 people are dead. There's no verification from the police at that point. No. What do, what do you do with that information? It was tough. It was so tough. Um, because obviously with our programming, we our, our news coverage became rolling coverage quite quickly. Mm. And I remember a liver... I had to do into Jesse Mulligan's afternoons program. So a liver for uh, the uninitiated, just yeah, being obviously what I what talking I think live it means. on the radio on yeah. the phone. So I'd call up and describe um, what sort of going on. And at, at that point, um, we'd spoken to a couple of people who said there were people dead on the grounds. And at mm-hmm. that point, that video that, um, that came out. And I watched it, and I watched it, I skimmed through it, I skimmed through it twice. So when the video being the shooter's video. Yeah, when he strapped a um, GoPro to his um, firearm mm. and broadcast it on, um, online, and I found it on YouTube because we heard that there was this video floating around. I um, didn't believe that was true until I saw it, and I saw the New Zealand number plate. Mm. And I thought, holy heck, there is, you know, here is video of what happened. And I remember what talking on the radio saying we've heard reports that 40 or 50 people are dead and that was you know the police weren't telling us anything and that's the weight of that has sort of stuck with me mm. um yeah as in being being someone who without the verification from the police is telling the country that this many people mm. are dead completely mm. it was hard it was really hard um but we have to report on what you know on what we can and um yeah it, 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 it's been a weight that yeah. So, what have what have what's happened with that weight since? Um, no, we keep going. <laughs> um, it's not really stopped in terms of coverage for us this week. Um, I'm actually putting out a, a documentary. I've been with one of the shooting victims for the last year as he's been recovering. An incredible man named Tamal, um, and he was shot nine times at El Nor Mosque. So, I guess we've just kept been doing. We, we've kept doing our job. We've kept reporting what's happened. We've stayed with the victims telling their story and how how they're going um and that's been sort of really important for us throughout the last year is really focus on the victims and what they've been going through because it's been hell it's been absolute hell Mm. this this is where what i've loved about each of the journalists that have featured in this podcast is that sense of having a cause there's a sense of justice here to a degree in that you have a sense of doing right by the people who were most hurt 
by this. And you're, you're expressing it there, the telling of their stories as the year has rolled by and now we're hitting the anniversary. There's the telling of their story. There's that sense of getting through it to do right by them. Completely. We, we, and, and, and in some way we're documenting history mm. and this is how we tell these stories now will be how future generations look back on this terrible um, events and uh, I mean I like to think that our coverage has in some way honoured the people who you know we're talking about whether they've passed away or have survived but that's been a real focus at least for me is to uh, to honour them and their and their uh, and the coverage and really sort of show um, holistically I guess what they're going through because these stories are complicated there's yeah, so are. many parts to them and I mean I, I'm ashamed to say I didn't know anyone in the Christchurch Muslim community and I think many reporters would consider themselves to be in the same boat mm. um, before the um, attacks. I know plenty of um, people in the community now and I'm in the, and I like to think I'm quite close to many of them. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's certainly been a journey from from my perspective at mm. least. Mm. Well, from as someone who's looking from the outside, how a lot of uh, our media outlets are covering it, I think you're doing a fantastic job. So thank you uh, mm. for that. Jumping back to the day, you mentioned the initial liver, uh, jumping on air and uh, giving that hefty report that that you had to give, uh, that you'd heard that 40 to 50 people are dead. How did it pan out from there for you? I think the next couple of hours were busy. We had ambulances going backwards in the Fords um, for the next few hours. Those paramedics did a fantastic job. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what they would have. I mean, I've spoken to some of them since and, and you know, heard... Um, you know their their, their story, but I, I mean that they, they went they went backwards and forwards for hours. It was incredible. So a lot of the um, rest of the day was talking to people as they sort of came out. Many of them were well, all of them were obviously shot. Many of them were covered in blood. Many of them were missing bits of clothing that they'd used to try and bandage up their um, their family or friends who were still inside. Um, a lot of it's interesting, a lot of misinformation mm. came around, and I think that comes back to really us not getting much information from the authorities that day. Um, like at one point, I remember we had multi multiple reports that the hospital was under attack, mm. and I, I was hearing this so common that I actually, commonly I talked to my boss and said, can I actually talk, say the hospital's under attack? And and in my next live, my sort of gut said, don't say it. So I didn't. And thank goodness I didn't, because the hospital wasn't under attack. And another example is we were told there were car bombs everywhere and they were going off. There were no car bombs going off anywhere. So a lot of the misinformation, and I think because of that, a lot of people were scared. Um, and a lot of people were near, who were near that corridor. A lot of people go past that area every day. It's a, it's a main sort of commute um, mm. transport corridor. So a lot of people were, were coming. They were scared. They were terrified. I mean, one um, elderly lady I spoke to was afraid to um, get in her car because it might be a bomb. Now, that sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, it was perfectly reasonable. Mm. So I guess the rest of the day for us was digging through all of that information, trying to ascertain what was actually happening and um, talking to uh, you know the people who, who came out of that mosque. But sort of as the night sort of wore on and and it sort of got dark the city emptied there was nothing happening um it was silent friday night not mm. a single person in the city as far we drove we left the cordon al-nor mosque in the early evening 
excuse me, and drove through the city, and the only people around were armed police officers, which was quite a sight. It was mm. quite incredible. Um, the work didn't stop, of course, um, but yeah, that's how the night sort of finished for for me is a silent city, mm. I guess. Yeah, that, that's a that's an aspect of it that hasn't come out with the other discussions I've had. Just that almost post-apocalyptic sense of the city in the yeah, in the bizarre. immediate wake of it. Yeah, uh, and that that played out because I, I landed on the Saturday morning. That played out obviously not to that extreme, but it played out across the weekend. I remember the Monday morning just feeling airy as people are having to go back to work because most people weren't overly affected by the whole thing, mm-hmm. so they've got to go back to work. But they're carrying this thing that's just just happened in their city. I want to jump back for a second to the information because there's an important point there that I think people need to understand about journalists. You're passing information all the time Mm. and making decisions about what information you share and what information you don't in a situation like that that is a massive responsibility and we've already touched on the responsibility but that's going on in a journalist's life all the time you get people moaning about the information that gets shared or doesn't the the supposed hype of the media but this is happening all the time that decision is the job isn't it Mm, it is and we're always making decisions around what we say and what we don't say and we do that with a and a very experienced team who have been in the in the industry for a long time we're all qualified journalists um well i mean i can only speak for us here at radio new zealand um but yeah all the time we make those those calls in many different circumstances and situations you mentioned uh some of the stuff you were seeing and you could tell i could tell that the images were probably popping back in your mind people coming out with blood on them uh clothes torn missing missing pieces of clothing i had a chat with george hurd who was there collecting images and frantically trying to get his editors because he was hyped up on adrenaline mm. just trying to get his, ed- he his editors to, he did an amazing job trying to get his editors to publish the images and then making the right call to not publish some of the stuff that he was sending through so there are people like you there are people like George and the other reporters who I've spoken to who have seen things that people other people just aren't rightly uh, including the video just aren't mm. going to see mm. how vivid is some of that imagery still for you I think I will never forget that video that was I, I wish I didn't have to see that but in some way in some ways, I'm sort of glad I did because it gave us the verification to, mm. to to show what was happening. But it was it was awful. It was so awful. Um, the thinking, but it was, yeah, all of it was just awful. Um, yeah, it doesn't leave you, to be honest. And I don't think I've actually stopped and probably processed it ever. Mm. Yeah, um, I think I think that's true for most of you. No, in the industry, but I don't know if I ever will. To be honest, yeah, um, I think it's one of those things. If I can jump into being chaplain for a moment, <laughs> it's one of those things that you will carry all of your life. But hopefully, over time, the vividness of the imagery dies a little bit uh, as time plays out. the The moments mm. where they come back just start to get further and further apart. That's how it plays out for the average person. Where that gets stuck is where it becomes a problem. Mm. I think for for me, a moment that struck me was uh, one month down the track, I did a, another documentary. We we put a whole documentary together in seven working days. It was almost a TV hour. I don't know how we did that, but we <laughs> did it. Um, and and I, I I know every I chose every single shot that went in there. I knew I knew every single frame. I knew every single sound. And um, but it wasn't until about six or seven months after it went out in April 
And I was sitting down in my lounge, it would be later, late in 2019, and watched it, and I just started crying. I was like, holy heck, yeah. that's just incredible um, what happens. Um, but I think in this job, you know, we sort of run from one disaster to another, in a sense. So we never really stop and think about what's actually happened and internally process it. Yeah, but because you're a human being, the cracks mm. show somewhere. So oh, for you, it came out in tears. For other people, it comes out in substance abuse. Mm. For others, it comes out in relationship problems. I got we'll, fat yeah. afterwards. Quite, quite, quite simply, I got. I, I, I ate so much now, food. Mate. Thank you. And I, I got so fat after, which sounds dumb, but nah. um, I just ate. I was substance like, abuse. I was so I was so busy. I, I I can I can't really remember what. Like I can't mm. say what I did on the Monday or Tuesday after. It's all a big blur. But for the months and probably the months afterwards, I just ate. Yeah. Um, yeah everybody everybody has like 15 their... kilos. It was terrible. <laughs> it's all gone now. Well, you've done well. Thank you've you. done well getting rid of it. For everybody, it comes out in some mm. way. Like I, I, I came back down, I think it was about a month later, and got Richard Black, from uh, train counsellor from Strength to Strength on board, and we ran a little workshop on trauma. How to identify it in yourself and others and what what you could do about it. Every single person in the room had stuff going on in the world and they hadn't connected it to March 15. There was someone having heart palpitations, no idea why. Someone having panic attacks, mm. no idea why. Someone dealing with insomnia, no idea why. It was all coming out in some way and that, that's happened for you. Yeah, but that's the thing about Canterbury though and um, I mean, I, can, I feel I can say that for living there for five years and reporting extensively on the issues is that it, it all goes back years and years and years. There are, there's years of trauma in Canterbury. You've got obviously the earthquakes. Um, I've reported extensively on the insurance situation down there which sounds removed but that's caused plenty of trauma mm. for many people and then you have things like this um, the gas explosion later in the year more trauma you, you have the, the many floods and fires we've mm. seen in Christchurch and Canterbury it all just sort of adds up on uh, on top of on top of each other or at least that's how I've sort of yeah, it does. It, it does. It's, it's quite incredible. And it, when it, when things like that happen so often, people don't often have a chance to stop and process it. Mm. And it's, it, all people crack at some point. Yeah, they do. And, and Christchurch has has signs of that stress. So if you think about Christchurch as a person, there's a there's a natural arc where someone would normally come out and and things would start to be okay. At the points where that would happen, Christchurch as a city has been kicked again, and then it's happened again, and then it's happened and again. again. And yeah. So as a city, it hasn't had a chance to just take that natural arc out of mm. out of trauma, and you can you can see it you can see it in people. Mm. I want to jump back to the to the evening because you're driving through the city. It's eerie. There's nobody around. Uh, it's empty. You get home. What happens in your head? I was still working. Um, probably dur- during this time, I. Um Probably quite foolishly, in hindsight, put up a little video on Twitter of what was happening. It was just ambulances going past. I think I had about 40 or 50 international media requests for mm. interviews, which I don't mind doing. I had so many, though. I was like, well, what do we do of these? And my, I think my boss said at the time, uh, pick ones that you, uh, you, you know, pick organisations you might want to work for in the future and do an interview with them. So I think I did, um, like, to the BBC and the CBC and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation um, that night. Um, I think I was last to leave the office actually, so um, it would have been after midnight that we were we were doing these. Um, but I got home and no one was asleep. My partner, who's brown, was awake, terrified. 
about what was happening because at that point it was it was um, people with sort of starting to get the idea, but it was a, a race thing. Um, I didn't. I kept working, and I didn't stop working for days. I guess um, because we, we did special shows on Saturday and Sunday and and all all that week. You and I caught up on the Saturday, uh, just when you're in a little window before going back to work again. Was and that the first time we met? Yes, it was. it was. It was. It was. You got in touch, and uh, I'm glad to, uh, whatever good it would have done, glad that we had the opportunity to sit down and chat in that moment. From what I remember, uh, you hadn't slept. No. Uh, you had mentioned having other people's blood on your clothing mm. when you had when you had finished. That's massive stuff to to have to deal with. Uh, I caught you in a frantic moment where I'd imagine I, think I was the, pumped on adrenaline. You were. I was just yeah. about to say you would have been jacked up on adrenaline. You're a little bit shell, not a little. You were shell shocked. Mm. Then you had to go back out into it again. That's huge. Mm. When did you first sleep? I can't remember. I mean, I think at some point you sort of have to. I mean, I would have slept probably on Sunday. Um, but it's actually not an easy sleep. Um, yeah. Work was tough those few days um, afterwards. They were really tough. I mean, I'm a, I'm a one-man band journalist working for a, for a news team, um, and I had amazing support from my um, Checkpoint colleagues up in Auckland, and they started coming down, I think, on the late Sunday or Monday. Um, but for the for the Saturday and Sunday, it was you know, me on the ground, um, which is my job, and I love it. Best job in the world. Um, but it was tough. Mm-hmm. It was tough. Um, I mean, I remember sitting, I think it was the Saturday. I mean, it's all a blur now. It was a Saturday or Sunday. It was before one of our special broadcasts. Um, so it would have been the Saturday then. Um, and I was outside of Hackley College um, interviewing this young man named Muhammad, who um, was only a few years older than me. And he'd lost, I think, three or four of his close friends. And he was just, uh, and his mum had been um, shot in the arm. She was fine. Um, well, as fine as she can be, having been shot in the arm, but she wasn't dead. And I was interviewing him on a park bench in Hackley Park, and he was just breaking down and in tears, breaking down in front of me. And not just in tears, but like clearly he hadn't processed it until that point either. And those um, sort of interviews carried on for um, for days because um, mm. there was there were so many people affected um, and I'm so glad that we told those stories and we gave those stories as all the room we can um, to honor those people um, but we didn't no we, we certainly didn't stop mm. Simon was a fantastic support um, yeah, there's a there's an amazing photo of a of me walking towards the um the court and wanting to speak to the police officers that he took and me and me with my hand up and the police officer pointing a <laughs> pointing a rifle at me. Um, but no, he was fantastic, and my the Christchurch um, reporters in the newsroom were were um, really good. Um, but yeah, it was tough. I think everyone probably felt somewhat isolated my colleague Conan Young was at the other mosque um, I, I can't imagine what he went through there mm. but it was certainly just as if not even more horrific there mm. um, yeah we yeah you can you could be surrounded by people but in a situation like that you often feel very lonely and isolated yeah. um, but that's when the training kicks in and that's when you you think why am I doing this um, I'm doing this to tell New Zealand what's happened um, and that's when that sort of mentality kicks in that you keep going mm. How did you get other people's blood on your clothes? 
I remember I was interviewing a guy in, um, so they, a, a group of survivors, for lack of a better word, um, had gathered just on that sort of, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but it's a, a hotel in the corner there. And um, I was interviewing one of them, um, of Simon, and at the end of it he grabbed my hand as if to shake it, and his hand was blood on it from someone he was trying to save. And, um, and yeah, I, I always remember the, the the feeling and the smell of of someone else's um, blood. Like it wasn't like I was covered in mm. in bloods, but um, yeah, it's um that that stuck with me. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, but plenty of people came out of that at mosque just you know, with blood on them, trying to save others. But, yeah, they were heroes that day. Yeah, how has the uh I don't know if it's a decent question, but how has the easing back into more normal stories gone? I don't think we have normal stories. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess it, it depends what your definition of normal stories are, because I think a few weeks later I went to the West Coast to cover major flooding over there, True. and um, and there was a, a poor elderly woman who was um, caught, caught in a river and drowned. Um, and then uh, we a few months later we had the gas explosion, um, which was just so destructive and um, plenty of other things um, going on. Um, but I honestly don't think it stops. Mm. I don't think it will ever stop. And I, I think it's important that we don't let it stop um, because these are important stories to tell. And interestingly, no one I've, I've ever interviewed didn't want their story told, mm. um, which was something I was surprised at um plenty of people wanted to tell their stories um yeah which which surprised me actually a little bit because often um people you know they see a cameraman and a journalist and they don't want to speak that's normal um it's odd to have a camera put in your face (laughs) um but i i I can't uh, there must have been some but i can't think of any obvious examples of anyone turning down an interview request yeah, that's been a consistent theme in each of these mm. conversations. It's just how, how open the Muslim community was and how surprised pretty much every journalist was to to encounter their openness. And uh, I've said it once, I'll keep saying it, I'm really thankful they were because mm. they, they showed us something. They helped. I mean, you journalists were in the mix helping us process it and lead us in the in the grief and giving us cues on how that could happen. That's where I think uh, the stories of uh, like Lisa Davies, her, her emotion on camera, I think, was really important. But even more than the journalists, that community helped lead us through that grief. Our prime minister did an amazing job, but that community, they were leading us and guiding us through that grief. Oh, completely. Many of them are absolute heroes, without a doubt. They're, 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 many of them have done the most incredible job dealing with um, what's gone on. Their community leaders—I I use the word "community leaders" very cautiously, only because the Muslim community in Christchurch has many um, parts to it. Mm. Um, it's a diverse community, just like any community in New Zealand. But they have worked really, really hard, and. Especially in an environment where I, I really I really question anyone who would come out and say that New Zealand has sort of learnt lessons 
from the attacks. I mean, I can think of at least one ex- one uh, example of a victim of someone who was inside the mosque who has been racial, racially and physically abused in the streets since. Mm. So they, they're still operating in an environment which is very much hostile. Um, obviously, the news, I think, was a week or two ago that someone had mm. deliberately targeted a um, one of the mosques um, and posted it. I posted a, a threatening picture online. Um, you know, they're, they're working in an incredibly hostile environment that um, can appear and is dangerous. Um, and I'm always flawed at how open um, and um, ready to speak many of them are and how um, what great representatives they are of their community. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree. And at the time of recording this, there's, there's more and more information coming out about some uh, conversation that has been going on about people buying weapons and bullets to try and uh, try and foster terror cells around the country. It's just, it's just scary. It's awful. And these these um, communities have been battling it for ages, far before March 15, and that's becoming clearer now in our reporting. Yet. Many of these people are st- uh, will stand up strong. Mm. It's quite incredible to watch and mm. very admirable. To close, is there is there one thing that you think, in terms of I don't know, wisdom, distilled things, stuff you've learned, uh, things that have changed in in your world because of it? Is there one thing that you'll take away from the whole the whole experience? Well, I guess for me, the experience of reporting it hasn't stopped really. Um, mm. So, and we're learning. Things every day. I guess though the the whole the whole March fifteen reporting, so to speak, really hammered home the importance of why we do what we do. Yes, and if we're not there telling the country what happens, what's happening, what has happened, and what will be happening as much as we can, um, I f- I fear to think what would have happened. Mm. Um, I mean, just. Reflecting back on that miscommunication we spoke earlier about, if we weren't there going through it all, um, gosh, it would have been, yeah, it would have been terrible. And I think being able to share those stories is just such an honour. Mm. It is such an honour, and I can't think of anything better to be doing personally. And it's, um, yeah, it's such an honour to share those stories of bravery, um, also suffering, and you really, I guess, be there. Yeah. It's incredible. If I could say, and there's many reasons that we've engaged in doing this podcast, but as someone who sees a lot of the cynicism that goes on towards the media, uh, I think the media is extremely important. I think a country without the media is not a country that I uh, want to live in, but I know that the industry is shifting and changing and resources are stretched. So I think I think we need a country that understands the importance of, of the media. We need to be making sure that, it, that it's strong, that people like you get to do your job. So uh, Logan, thank you so much for this thank you for the catch-up that we had and giving me a little bit of your time on the saturday when i was down there it's been a pleasure thank you that was logan church as we close out this series i want to thank each of the journalists who generously gave of their time and themselves to share their experiences of that horrible day and what they've been processing since thomas mead Blair ensor lisa davies george hurd rachel das and logan church each of you has my deep respect I also want to acknowledge the other Christchurch journalists, producers and technical crew who were there that day to report the unfolding trauma. Your work in the middle of it all was phenomenal. To those New Zealand journalists, producers and editors around the country, you did an outstanding job. 
You led the nation through a significant moment that has now etched itself into our story. Most importantly, you honoured the small Muslim community of Christchurch that was and still is most profoundly affected by the terror that was wrought upon them that day. We created this series because we believe in the need for healthy, strong media. We wanted their story to be seen and heard. Do they always get it right? Not always. Sometimes they get it wrong, just like the rest of us. You would have heard in the series that some of them came to realize they had no connection to the Muslim community of Christchurch prior to this tragic event, and in some instances had a blinkered image of what that community was all about. Even with Muslims around the country trying to highlight the danger they were facing, we were looking in the wrong direction and hadn't taken white supremacy seriously enough as a threat in this country. What I applaud from our media here is the willingness to learn, to adapt, and to correct course when they realise what they've missed. As media consumers, we also need to own the part we play. We shape what gets produced through what we pay attention to. If we want solid, well-researched news, we need to applaud it, encourage it, share it, and yes, even pay for it. In my work as a media chaplain, I sit down with New Zealand journalists and news producers regularly. I encounter good people who care about quality news. They're stretched, have limited resources and brutally short deadlines, but as a nation we need them. On March 15th, we needed the media. We will always need the media. It is my hope that getting a glimpse behind the scenes has given a newfound appreciation for the people who are the conduits of such vital information. My thanks also goes to the team who helped produce this series. Josh Couch, Alicia Gordon, your immense work has been outstanding. Also thanks to Phil Guyon for the green light to make this happen. I'm Frank Ritchie, media chaplain, minister, broadcaster. If you work in New Zealand's news industry and would appreciate a chat, don't hesitate to get in touch via mediachaplaincy.nz. I also have colleagues around the country, male and female, and would love to hear from you. The coffee's on us. To all who have listened to this series, thanks for your time. And to borrow a phrase from our Muslim whānau, peace be upon you.